Leviticus. It's the one book in our Bibles that when we page through it and we read about all these offerings and sacrifices and things, we may really deem it weird. And really, it's this one book that we can easily page by and just to just get it over with or to just ignore it. But it's there. And it was given by the Father so that he might teach us some things. And I want to submit to you that the book of Leviticus has some of the most, the deepest teachings for us 21st century believers in Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, to embrace today. And if we toss that book aside, we'll be missing on so much death. And we will never be able to understand much of what Jesus' sacrifice really means for us. And one of the things described in the, the book of Leviticus is around Leviticus 16, where God talks about this feast of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And in the, this is the day where that happens once a year. This feast occurs once a year and Israel is to come and make and the priest will be making an offering for all of the sins of Israel as a whole. This is different. It's not just a a gift offering or like we read in many of the other uh, much of much of the rest of Leviticus. But this offering is an offering for the whole of Israel. And it's interesting because when we look fast forward 2000 years or so, 3000 years, Yeshua, Jesus laid his feet on this earth. We see how what he did on this day, because we can actually, as you'll see in this teaching, we can actually pinpoint this day in the life of Jesus and his earthly ministry. And it's in the beginning of his ministry. And there's something incredibly relevant that happens in his life on this day that you may easily miss if you're not paying attention and if you don't understand what he was doing. And we read about this event, the day that Yeshua was standing in the synagogue proclaiming the gospel. But before we come to that event, we first need to look into this day of atonement. We first need to dig in to see what is this day of atonement actually about. So that when we come to the story of Yeshua, we'll actually be able to fill in the gaps in these puzzle pieces to understand what actually was happening there and the profoundness thereof. So one of the first things to understand about the Day of Atonement is to understand this was one of the most important festivals to Israel, because this was the once a year event festival appointed time when Israel can have all of their sins as a community, the land of Israel taken care of. And it consists of two goats. And what happens is these two goats are brought to the priest. The priest, these two goats have to be basically the same. They need to be identical in that they should be spotless and perfect. They should both be a worthy sacrifice, right? But then lots are casted. And one of the goats is chosen to be a goat that is a, that would be giving atonement unto the Lord. And the other goat would be giving atonement as the scapegoat. We read about this in Leviticus 16, starting in verse seven. 
Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, one of the first things about these two goats is, like I mentioned, that they are the same. They are basically seen as identical. It's interesting because there are these identical two goats in the beginning, but then with a cast of lots, their destinies hang in the balance. And one of these goats will go one way and the other goat will go the other way. And it speaks about something that Yeshua, Jesus, would undergo. He is one person like these two goats. They're basically identical, even though these two goats will have two different callings. Two different missions. The same thing is for Yeshua. Yeshua will have the same missions as you will now see than these two goats and what they receive. The first goat is the atonement goat. And this goat is basically uh, slaughtered and its blood is taken and sprinkled over the mercy seat. This, his, this goat is basically given as to God. Leviticus 16 verse 15, and he shall slay the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people and shall bring his blood inside the veil and shall do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the lid of atonement and in front of the lid of atonement. And so, of course, it's easy to see how Yeshua fits into the picture of this first goat where his blood, he was as pure. He was spotless. He had with he was without wrinkle. He was a perfect man. He had no sin. And because he had no sin, his his, his sacrifice was a worthy offering. And just like this goat's blood was sprinkled on the mercy, this is a picture of what Yeshua would later come to do for us. The second goat, however, it becomes a little more complicated. And this goat is even more interesting as it pertains and how as to how it pertains to Yeshua's sacrifice. We see that the second goat, also known as the scapegoat or the goat that is sent to Azazel, this goat is actually the priest comes and he places his hand on the head of this goat and he confesses all of the sins of Israel onto this goat. It's placed on this goat and everyone understands. Everyone is watching how this priest is putting his hand and all the sins of the people of Israel are transferred to this goat. And of course, this is a picture. This is not in reality happening. Of course, this whole goat and everything that's happening with these goats. This was not actually happening. This was a symbolic picture of what Yeshua would later come to do. But what happens next with this goat is after the sins are confessed over him, the goat is actually then taken and laid outside, moved out of Israel into a wilderness and by a man. And this goat is then left there. And what would actually often also happen is we read in the historical writings how they would actually because they left the goat there, they would then uh, come back. Right. And the goat 
the goat is not stupid. The goat is smart. And so the goats would oftentimes actually follow the priest back that led the goat out. See, this would all be a picture of how um, it, our, sin, our sins were placed on this goat and the goat was led away. So our sins are taken away. But then sometimes, like I mentioned, the goat would actually come back. And so what they ended up deciding to do is they would actually, as they let the goat out into the wilderness, they would actually lead the goat to a cliff and they would push the goat off the cliff to make sure that it cannot come back. I mean, it would be kind of weird, right? If you pushed, if you took the goat out and, and it just came back the next day and then Israel sees this goat with all the sins of Israel is back, right? But that's why they pushed him off the cliff to make sure that he can't come back. Now, Yeshua, of course, also fulfills this second goat and what happens to him. We know that when he was taken to the cross, the sins of the world was placed upon him. And so that's the same thing with that was happening with the scapegoat is the sins are confessed by the priest over this goat. Now, it's interesting, though, because we see a kind of a dichotomy. Like I mentioned, he fulfills kind of both goats. Firstly, he fulfills the first goat where he was spotless and perfect without sin. But and then that was a sacrifice. But also the second goat, we see that all the sins were placed upon him of the world or of Israel. So at the same time of him being perfect, sins of others were placed upon him. How could he die without sin if sin was placed upon him? And that is really the question that God is trying to answer for us in these two goats and the picture he's painting to us. You see, Yeshua was both of these goats. He was perfect, spotless, blameless. But on the other hand, he also died for us and took the sins upon us. It's very much and the way that this is possible is very much like light and darkness works. If you think about a physical light or if you think about darkness, the way that they interact with each other is similar to good and evil. If you have a light in a dark room, that room will be lit with light. And no matter how dark you try to make that room, if that light is burning so perfectly brightly, no amount of darkness will ever reach it and the room will stay lit. So in other words, that is what happened with Yeshua because he was perfectly holy, perfect light, good darkness was even though it was placed upon him, even though darkness attempted to to overshadow him, just like a light in a room where darkness is continuously trying to come to the light. And the moment you switch off a light, what happens? The room becomes pitch black dark because darkness overpowers it. But it's Yeshua was never overpowered because he is pure blood and his pure light and his light never stops shining. And so that is what happened. He was perfect, pure, holy on that cross. He had no sin. But then he became sin for a moment where darkness tried to come to him, but it just fell right off of him. While the sins of the world were placed upon him, it had no grip. It had no hold. 
And so that is why when Yeshua physically died on the cross, what happened is death had no grip. It had no sting, as the scriptures say, because see, for death to be able to manifest, sin needs to be present. There is a spiritual law that God has made in this universe that says that death comes when there is sin. And God tells us this in his word. He says, says that sin leads to death. So in other words, if there but if there is no sin present at all and death takes place by force of some sort, it has to be reversed because that death was unauthorized. That death could was not a legal um, authority that could take place. So that is why Yeshua had to be resurrected. That's why death had no sting because death cannot sting someone who has never sinned. And so that is why, even though for a moment he took the sins of the world upon him, he was able to not die in the sins of the world, but be resurrected because of his own perfection. And so Yeshua was both the first goat while as you, because Yeshua's blood as the perfect lamb, as the perfect sacrifice was sprinkled on God's mercy seat. But Yeshua was also the second in that he died for the sins of Israel, for the sins of the world. And he led it out away, out of our midst, out of our presence into a wilderness, a far away place to where it is out of our side and not to come to be placed on us again. But we see an even greater fulfillment in the, how Yeshua fulfills the second goat, the scapegoat or the goat of Azazel. When we fast forward to the time of Yeshua's ministry, we see a great fulfillment of his life in this day of atonement described in Leviticus yet again. In Luke 4, we see Yeshua in a synagogue and he's handed a scroll. But this scroll was already opened to the book of Isaiah. We can deduct that it was opened in Isaiah. Because they were expecting him to read the half Torah portion of the Day of Atonement in Isaiah 58. He read the following in close proximity to that portion in Isaiah 61. The spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to send away crushed ones with a release, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh. And having rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the congregation were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been filled in your hearing. As he is reading this part of Isaiah 58, he is saying this part of Isaiah is actually speaking about me, setting the captive free, proclaiming the good news. And then he says to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh. But what happened next after he says this is what is even more profound. Yeshua then starts talking to the audience and he tells them about these Gentiles who got healed like a leper or and a widow who were not Jews, people who 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 had a who had faith in, the, in God, 
but who were not Jews. And this upset them greatly. We read Luke 4 verse 26. And Elijah was sent to none of them but to Seraphoth of Zion, to a woman, a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Armenian. And rising up, they drove him out of the city and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built in order to throw him down. But he, passing through the midst of them, went away. The dominating belief amongst his audience was that the Jews are the ones who get saved and that salvation is for no one else. The Jewish people were the only ones God really came for. And so Yeshua coming to tell them, guys, and he starts reciting from the prophets about how Elijah, how God used Elijah to heal pagan Gentiles who had faith in God. And this upset them deeply. And it has upset them so greatly because it clashed with their traditional beliefs. It, they, because they lifted the word, their tradition and their traditional beliefs, their words above the words of God. And so when they were so angered that they came to Yeshua, they drove him out and they drove him up to a hill. Do you remember, remember that scapegoat? Remember that? goat, that Azazel goat, that the priests would actually try to throw off the hill to get rid of their sins. That's exactly what they try to do. They try to push Yeshua off this hill to get rid of their own sins. You see, because it was their sins that angered them. Their sins were exposed. The fact that they just have twisted the word of God to mean something that it does not say. Because he just said, this is the acceptable year and I am standing here before you today. I am this sacrifice. I am the Yom Kippur Day of Atonement sacrifice. This is the acceptable year. And it's not just for you. Did God not heal even the pagan Gentiles who had faith in him? And then they were angered. They drove him. And as they drove him to the brink of falling off the hill, He turned around and he walked right through them. Because see, even though they tried to kill him, death had no sting. Death had no authority. You see, we should be careful and mindful, brothers and sisters, that we are not like the Pharisees. Who because of our sin, because we love our sin, we love our own wickedness, we love our own words, even if they're contrary to the word of God. We love it so much sometimes that we unknowingly but in our actions, we're actually trying to throw Yeshua off the cliff over and over and over again. We're trying to kill him over and over and over again. We're trying to crucify him for us over and over and over again and trample his sacrifice underfoot. Because, brother and sister, it is good to embrace what he did for us. It is good to have faith in that and the salvation. But when we start trampling underfoot his sacrifice by continuing in sin, even though God has called us to repentance. Because see, brothers and sisters, they had a moment where they were called to repentance. Yeshua told them this. He basically exposed their sin. But what did they do? They didn't repent. They continued sinning. They continued and they, in their action, they physically did what we spiritually do sometimes. 
They physically try to push him off a cliff. That's what we spiritually try to do. We spiritually try to kill him over and over. Oh, Yeshua, yes, thank you for dying for me. But here's some more sin. Here's some more sin. And brother, sister, I'm not talking about that we should live this life of perfection without sin because that's unattainable. That's why he died. But if we have habitual, continuous sin and we continue in, yes, I am in a rebellious I've got a rebellious heart and I'm in rebellious sin against him because thank you, Yeshua, but you died for me so I can sin. If that is our mind, we can continue sinning because of what he did instead of seeing what he did and use that as the opportunity to motivate us to stop sinning, then we are in great sin. We must use his motivate his death as a call, see it as a call to repentance, as a as him saying, my son, my daughter. I love you, but it's time now. You've seen what I've done for you. I love you so much that I laid my life down for you. Now, will you do the same for me? Will you lay down your sin, lay down your your addictions, lay down your fears, lay down the things you love in this world, but that keeps you back from me. See, brothers and sisters, God is calling you to a deeper relationship with him. And you cannot let your sin keep trying to push him off the cliff. You see, brothers and sisters, many will try to teach that because Yeshua died so that we can continue sinning. Yeshua died so that we may live as we like. You see, the fact of the matter is he died so that you should stop sinning, so that he can change your heart by the Holy Spirit that comes and dwells in you so that you will be obedient to his law. He says in Jeremiah 31 verse 31, I will come and I will write my law in your heart. I will change your nature to walk like he walked. That is, we are called to walk as he walked. And if we say we abide in him, yet we don't walk like he walked. We're liars and the truth is not in us. And so if anyone ever teaches you that we can do what we want. We don't need to keep the law anymore because he did it for us. He fulfilled it so we don't have to do it anymore. That's not what God is saying here. And that kind of teaching is what the Pharisees, that is what will lead you to push him off the cliff. That is the thing that will cause you to trample him underfoot. If you say, Yeshua, thank you. Now I can break the law because you kept it for me. That's a disgusting teaching that has been going around. And God is saying, no, I have given you instructions. And he actually says they're forever. They're eternal. In Matthew 5, Yeshua himself also says, until heaven and earth passes away, they are not passing away. And he says, whoever teaches, they're abolished, or does not do them will be called least in my kingdom. Whoever does them and, and teaches them will be called great to my kingdom. But brothers and sisters, you see, we need to stop picking and choosing. We need to start looking to his word, to God's word, and, and stop just saying, Yeshua, I want this part of you. I don't want this part of you. No, say, Yeshua, I want all of you, and I want to walk like you walked. Now, if you want to know how he walked, brother and sister, you need to learn what he learned. And what did he learn? What did he uphold? What did he come to do? To do what his father has sent him to do. And that is to be a perfect lamb, number one, to be that first goat, a perfect one who can, t- who can die spotless. And number two, to take the sins of the world upon himself. And so see, brothers and sisters, that is what God calls us in many other, in another way. He calls us to also be without sin. He calls us to be a bride adorned for her husband without wrinkle, like a virgin who has her oil trimmed and who under, but who understands that her bridegroom has died for her sins, the sins of Israel as a whole. 
You see, but it's interesting that because even though Yeshua was the day of atonement, Yom Kippur sacrifice, and even though they had the Yom Kippur, the day of atonement sacrifice um, in Israel, right with in Leviticus, as we read, that was a once a year sacrifice. But when we look at the rest of the year, continuously, there were other offerings being made. And so in the same way, God has called us to do that. He has called us to be a living sacrifice, to be an offering that is continuously burning for him to not not only look at this Yom Kippur, this day of atonement, once year sacrifice. You know, if you were in the, in the time of the sacrifices that were being done and you said, oh, I have my day of atonement. I have my Yom Kippur sacrifice that the priest did there once a year. I don't need to do anything else. That will be not be pleasing to the father and the same way God calls us to be a living sacrifice continually every single day to him. We need to be making offerings every single day to him. We need to be giving our life to him. We need to be giving our life in many, many ways to him, whichever way he has called you to do. And not just say, oh, well, Yeshua died for me. I don't have to do anything else. No, that's demonic teaching. Even here, even before Yeshua came, God gave us the pattern that it's not just about a once a year David home and sacrifice. It's about continuously making offerings unto him. Because he's not just about going. He's not just going to Sunday once a week kind of God. That's not who he is. He is a God that demands your life. He's a God that says, I gave my life for you. Now gave your life, give your life for me. I paid a price for you to give you eternal security. Give me your life to be a servant. He calls you to be a bond servant. Paul says, I'm a slave to Christ. That's what God calls you to do. Not to come and just here and there this Sunday, that Sunday. He calls you to serve him with everything you have. Romans 12 verse one states, I call upon you, therefore, brothers, through the compassion of God, to present your bodies a living offering set apart, well pleasing to God, your reasonable worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you prove what is that good and well pleasing and perfect desire of God. Paul says, be a living offering where you renew your mind. How? By getting in his word, reading his word so that the junk from the world can be removed and God can renew it, give you a new mind that is focused upon his walk, his way of life, his instructions. And in that way, your mind will not dwell on the things of the past and the things of the past life, the, the sins, but rather it will be renewed to start thinking more on him. And you know what he says? And that's interesting in that verse, he says, so that you can prove what is the well-pleasing and perfect will of God. In other words, so that you can show others, you can prove to the world that this is not just a little phase that you're going through. This is not just a little uh, thing. This is not just another religion. This is something that will change you really. See, brothers and sisters, other religions, there's many religions, they claim to do many things. They got their own instructions. They got their own books. They got their own gods. They got all their things. They got their own feast days. They got all their stuff. But their stuff is different because our God changes. Our God has a sent a Holy Spirit that will change your heart. 
But you cannot be this proof to the world that our God is different if you do not renew your mind. If you don't get in his word every single day, if you don't get on your face and ask him to make him you more like him. You see, my sisters, we need to go and search him in such a deep way because that's the testimony we want. It's not enough to just tell other people you need to do this, you need to do that. You need to be a good Christian. Be a good, be the good Christian. Be the one that they can see. Be the example so that they can be convicted in their hearts to walk more like Yeshua because they see Yeshua in you. Don't just tell them with your mouth. Tell it with your life. Because brothers and sisters, what we oftentimes do is we see all this stuff. We see, come to the knowledge of the truth. And it's sometimes nice to have the truth as head knowledge, but it means nothing if it's not applied. And if we only have the head knowledge and we try and put that on other people, then what happens is they just, they just like, well, that's nice, but I don't see that in your life. That's what they're thinking. And then they don't want it. And then we get frustrated because how can they not see the truth? But they don't want the truth because you don't live it. If you left the truth out and just kept more quiet, they will come and ask the questions. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need to do is we need to live louder than we speak. Sometimes there's nothing wrong with sharing the truth. We must. But if we don't, if we do it, but we don't live it out, we are actually doing more harm than good. So God calls us to not just be like the Pharisees who spoke many, had many truthful things to say, but had a life contrary to what they said. And one of the things God also calls us to walk out is the day of atonement and how God instructed us to keep it. You see, brothers and sisters, don't be fooled to think that even though Yeshua fulfilled this feast in many ways, that it is completely done and done away with now. As I mentioned in Matthew 5, Yeshua said, yes, I came to fulfill the Torah and the prophets. That's what he's saying. I came to bring meaning to it. That's what fulfill means. The word pleru in the Greek, it means to give meaning, to fill to individual capacity is what it means. And what it really means is he's saying, I came to give meaning. So like you saw in this teaching, Yeshua has been giving meaning to this part in Leviticus we read, this day of atonement. But that doesn't mean that he came to abolish it or to do to so that make it inapplicable to us. It is. I want to submit to you this festival and this instructions that come with it is now even more relevant than ever before in history to this generation, because we have come to the knowledge, understanding of Yeshua and his sacrifice and how he fits into this feast. And with this knowledge, we can actually keep this feast with a greater meaning. Because we can understand why, what it really means. Why, what is the day of atonement sacrifice really? It's him. He is our atonement. His blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And he was perfect. He also at the same time had the sins of the world placed upon him. And he carried our sins out into the wilderness away. See, there's so much meaning here. And now God tells us to remember all of this when the day of atonement comes once a year. And he says, this is how you do it. Leviticus 16 verse 29, and this shall be for you a law forever, forever in the seventh new moon on the 10th day of the new moon, you afflict your beings and do no work, the native or the stranger who sojourns among you for on that day, he makes atonement for you to cleanse you, to be clean from all your sins before Yahweh. It is a Sabbath of rest for you, and you shall afflict your beings, a law forever. 
God says, remember, this is the day that I made atonement for you. You need to remember this day by number one, afflicting your beings, which simply means to fast. And number two, to keep a Sabbath this, on this day. In other words, to take war, work off, to not work, but to rather set this day apart as holy and different so that you may remember and dwell on what he has done for you at this day of atonement. Many also believe that the day of atonement is not completely fulfilled and that there is that the day of atonement will also be the day that we know as judgment day, the day where we will all have to give an account for every idle word. It would make sense that this day would fall on this in light of the instruction too. Because we would then have fast on the day of atonement on a yearly basis. Because while this day is a, an amazing day of, of, what, of identifying what Yeshua did for us, it's also a day of fasting because of our sins that needed to be atoned for in the first place. And also a day of fasting because of the sins we have committed and that we will need to give an account for the idle words we spoke on the day of judgment. Even though we have may have salvation in Yeshua, we will still need to give an account. But you may think, well, PD, okay, well, that's nice. But what about the sacrifices that were done on the day of atonement? Should we then do them too? If you're, if I'm saying that the law is not a done away with, should we make it be making sacrifices? Well, that's of course, one of the first things that we would think, right? But God actually tells us in the next chapter about this. And he provides an answer. In Leviticus 17, we read, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the word which Yahweh has commanded, saying, Any man from the house of Israel who slays a bull or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or slays it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tent of appointment to bring an offering to Yahweh, before the dwelling place of Yahweh, blood guilt is reckoned to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. God is actually saying here that if you make an offering, if you think, oh, I should keep up making an offering and you make an offering in a place like your backyard, inside or outside the camp, it doesn't matter where basically, but if it's anywhere except at the temple or the tent of appointment as described in the scriptures, then that let the, the, the life of, and the blood of that sacrifice is on you. That is blood guilt that is on your head. And what God is really saying here is that you cannot just make a sacrifice anywhere where you want or anywhere you want. You need to do it. If you were to do it, you need to do it according to God's prescriptions and you cannot do it because there is no temple. Because there is the temple was destroyed and there is no temple standing today. That means you cannot make an offering. And of course, we understand at the same time that Yeshua has fulfilled the offering and that he is our offering. That's what all the offerings have always pointed to. They were. It's important to understand that they were never the offering and Leviticus, the offerings that were made with Israel. That was never seen as the offering. That was not the offering for their sins. It has always been a picture to teach us more about Yeshua. And today it does the same. Therefore, to say that Yeshua replaced the offerings 
would even technically be incorrect because Yeshua and the was never there to replace the offerings and the offerings was never there to replace Yeshua. They have two different roles completely. The offerings teach us about Yeshua the, and the offerings aren't there to try and replace Yeshua. They're not trying to make uh, offerings for atonement for sin physically. They're not trying to do any of that. They're simply, it's simply like deciding that we're going to keep the Passover festival. We're going to drink communion and we're drinking his blood and we're um, eating of his body. And when we do that, we are, what are we doing? We are, we are celebrating what he did for us. We are partaking in what he did for us. That doesn't take away from what he did for us. It adds to it because it's a memorial and a remembrance to what he did for us. In the same way, if we keep um, the, the festival, festival of unleavened bread, if we keep Passover, etc., if we keep all these things, we're not taking away from what he did by doing that. We are adding to it. We're bringing meaning to it. We're, 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 we're actually teaching and reminding ourselves of it. The fest, the, the, the sacrifices have, has been is a memorial of a memorial nature. It's not of a nature that's trying to replace Yeshua and it has never been. And so a sacrifice not done how and where God has specified is actually a sacrifice that God does not recognize at all. And he deems it that you make that as to another God. He says this himself in Leviticus 17 verse 7, and he says, And let them no longer slaughter their slaughterings to demons after whom they hoard. This is a law forever for them throughout their generations. You see, like I mentioned, you are that offering. You are that living sacrifice. And if you make your living sacrifice in a way that is not according to how God has called you to be and make it, God will see that offering as unrecognized. He will not recognize it and he will actually deem it as to being done to demons. Because if you live your life, your, make your offering, your living offering, your living sacrifice in a way that is not specified by God, then who is it specified by? Who are you following? You see, brothers and sisters, the commandments we follow dictate the God we serve. And if you do not follow God's commandments, you must follow another God. That is the logical conclusion that God will be coming to if you were to live in a way different from how he specified. If you were to make your offering differently. You see, how we approach God, he is very serious on that. He's prescribed it so in detail in Leviticus to show us that it's not a joke. And when we look at how many, even in the New Testament, approach God, if they did it incorrectly, they would just fall dead and they would die on the spot. You see, brothers and sisters, there's even a deeper thing in this because we can try and have a sincere heart behind our living sacrifice. We can have this heart of, oh, I, I, this is all for God. This is all his, uh, you know, this thing I'm doing right here. It's all for God. But if it's not the way that he told you to worship him, it means nothing. It's not unrecognized. You see, that's what God is trying to say here. You can try and keep Christmas, but Christmas was never commanded by him. It is an offering that you're making that is not going to be recognized because it's on a pagan, pagan God's date, because it's on a it's, it doesn't make any sense trying to offer, make offerings with your sacrifice your living sacrifice to God on this day and worship him on the day of a pagan God. He says, do not worship me in the way that 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 you used to worship your gods. You will worship me in the way I prescribed. He set apart dates, festivals for us to celebrate him on. Why aren't those enough? Why do we need to make up our own? 
You see, that's just one example of how we can try and make offerings to God and worship God or make sacrifices to God in ways he never prescribed. That's like it's not recognized. And he says blood guilt will be on you because if you, for example, went in the time here of Leviticus and you actually took an animal and you sacrificed it in your backyard in or outside the camp, wherever you did, but it wasn't where as how and as God specified, then he wouldn't recognize it. And at the same time, it's interesting because he says, then the blood of that animal is on your head. And what he means by that is he values the life of that animal. And if you were to just kill that animal and in the wrong way, you sacrificed it in the wrong way, you made your offering in the wrong way. He never and he didn't recognize it. That means that that animal is just you just killed it for no reason. You just did it all for absolutely no reason. Your worship was for no reason, no matter how sincere you thought you were. You didn't do it the way he asked. And that's why the blood guilt's on you. So if this animal was killed for just the pleasure thereof, just because you want to kill it, you're not eating it, you're not um, partaking in it, it's not giving life, but it's just being killed for the fun of it, or it's just being killed for the wrong reasons, then the blood is on, guilt is on you. Therefore, we shouldn't be killing animals for just no reason, because then its blood is on our head. It's fine to kill an animal, slaughter it, to eat it. That's different. But if it's for no reason, that would be wrong. And furthermore, this speaks to how our life is a living sacrifice yet again, with how our sacrifice was given to us by God and is valued by God. Therefore, if we squander it, if we kill this body by sin because sin produces death like we just talked about in the beginning so if we kill this life that god has given us and we squander it we forsake the calling of god we don't do what he said we live our offering in a way he didn't prescribe we approach him left and right like he didn't prescribe we do things he never told us to do and by that he sees it as us serving another god and if we live our life in that way we are having we have the blood of our own life on us it's on our own hands god has told us how to live he has given us instructions and if we don't follow it it is our choice and so the shedding of our own vessels, which is, which is a gift of God, the shedding of this blood would in its essence be the same thing. It would mean that we squander it and that the blood, our own blood would be on our head and we would have to be liable to judgment for that. So brothers and sisters, God has called you to be a living sacrifice that is honorable to him, a sacrifice that is there to build his kingdom. Like he died for you, he asks of you to die for him. Die to yourself. Have be a living sacrifice that is a pleasing aroma to the Father, where your prayers, if you live this way and if you walk like he did, your prayers will be like a pleasing aroma to the Father, where it would, where it would get answered. You know, God says that the unrighteous and the lawless one is the one whose prayers don't get answered. So if you struggle to get your prayers answered, maybe this is why. Maybe this teaching is explaining to you why. That it's because your sacrifice isn't truly from your heart and you're not doing it. You're not making an offering the way that God told you to do it. You're not doing it where God told you to do it. You're not in your calling. You're in a different place or you're doing it and not according to his word. Live your life according to his word. Be where you're supposed to be and sacrifice yourself where you should sacrifice yourself. And don't waste your time and sacrifice your, yourself and with things that God didn't call you to do. Don't waste your time on the things of this world. Waste, give your time 
to the things of God so that it may be fruitful and so that it may have meaning and so that it may be pleasing to our King. Because brothers and sisters, even though we feel sincere, even though we may feel like we're doing it for God, but if we don't do it the way He said, it would be as if we don't do it for Him, but after another God. He has asked us to give our life according to what he, he said, the way He said, and not according to our own ideas. So let's live like Him so we can be filled with Him, so we can be a testimony to the world around us. Because if we're a testimony to the world around us by this way we live, it will give life to others. It will inspire others to live, lay their lives down for this kingdom too. Inspire others to have their cup filled and ready for their bridegroom when He comes back. Brothers and sisters, I hope that this teaching has blessed you and encourages you to ask the Father to just make you more like Him. Look, I'm not perfect, and I know you're not perfect either. We're all, all got our issues, we all got our sins and stuff. But God calls us to up our relationship with Him. He wants to have a deeper place of intimacy with us, where we would walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And where we would walk, there would be freedom that follows us because of our relationship with Him. Because we are a sacrifice, a, we, are, we are like a slave to Christ, like Paul was. Then we will have the fruit that Paul had. If this teaching has blessed you, please consider subscribing to this YouTube channel. And I'll see you guys in the next video. Shalom. Hey guys, thank you so much for watching another teaching on Rise on Fire. If this teaching has blessed you, please consider making a donation to this ministry. Your donations are what help us continue producing and putting out these videos on a weekly basis. And without your support, it wouldn't be possible. Thank you for your support and may God bless you and keep you.